station. Support the Black Star News. Support the Black Star News. Support radio station WBAI. 516-620-3602. Very excited that Code Pink Radio is coming up next, and it's a wonderful collaboration with our sister station in Washington, D.C., WPFW. WBAI, New York. Bush and Bin Laden, you think they're foes? They're in business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before. Been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil. We know there's a link. They say code war. We say code pink. It's blood for oil. We know there's a link. They say code war. We say code pink. Good morning. This is Code Pink Radio, broadcasting live from WBAI 99.5 in New York City and simultaneously broadcasting from WPFW 89.3 in Washington, D.C. I'm Arielle Gold, the national co-director of Code Pink Hi, and this is Inas Al-Safadi, the Middle East Campaign Manager. Fantastic. So today we're going to be spending the first half of the hour talking about Palestine. We're going to be talking with Anas, our National National Middle East Campaign Director, as well as uh, the daughter of Khalida Jarrar. And we're going to be talking about a bunch of things. And during the second half hour, we're going to be speaking with Leonardo Flores, part of Code Pink's Latin America team, talking about talking with us about Bolivia as well as a bit about Venezuela. But first, the hot topics off the press. So yesterday uh, was a pretty intense day for Code Pink in Washington, D.C. Our co-director and co-founder, Medea Benjamin, was physically assaulted by right-wing Venezuelan opposition. And then, being such a police state that America is, Medea was threatened with arrest on false charges that she had supposedly assaulted Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz. And what happened was uh, they were at a press conference, which included the fake ambassador of Venezuela, Carlos Vecchio, who uh, has no legitimacy at all, and these opposition members who are just outright thugs pulled uh, into Medea and pushed and shoved her as she was holding up a sign that said, no coups in Bolivia or Venezuela, and they pushed her into Wasserman Schultz. And then they told the police that uh, Medea had assaulted the representative, which she had not. And shortly after that, police surrounded Medea's house. We'll get back to more of that when we have Leonardo on the uh, line, who was there at the time. Uh, but just so folks know kind of what's going on with that. And then over in the Middle East... So um, on November 12, uh, on November 12, uh, Israel again uh, escalated another attack on Gaza that led to kill 34 civilians, uh, including eight children and four women. And uh, they injured uh, 111 uh, civilians, including uh, 46 children and uh, another 20 uh, women. Um, they reached a ceasefire last night, and uh, the situation went back to normal so far, and hopefully um, that's very unfortunate. 
uh, again, Israel is uh, using all the power against Gaza, uh, which has been sieged for almost 12 years now. Uh, on another hand, um, Khalida Jarrar, uh, Israel court uh, about a week ago, extended her um, administrative detention for another week. We'll be talking more about that shortly once we finish the news. In Latin America, there has recently been a coup in Venezuela. Several governments, uh, including Russia, have recognized the interim government that uh, led by those who orchestrated the coup, uh, recognized the interim government prior to new elections. Uh, Evo Morales, who was ousted in the coup, has, set, has said from Mexico, where he is seeking refuge, that he would return to keep to, to Bolivia to keep the peace, but not to run for re-election. Both parties are trying to prevent a civil war in advance of the uh, Guaido call for action in Venezuela on sun Saturday. We'll be talking with Leonardo more about this, but uh, Juan Guaido is trying to orchestrate the coup with U.S. support in Venezuela, and it seems like these two are working together to do this. Guests can l watch our Facebook Live webinar from yesterday to learn more about Bolivia, and uh, you can find that on Facebook. We are doing a delegation in December to Cuba. So exciting. Unfortunately, the delegation is now full and closed, so you can't still apply to come, but you can help us promote the Code Pink folks who are, will be on the ground there in December and watch for uh, the blogs and post-trip news and updates. This means if you don't already get Code Pink's emails, you can sign up by going to our website, codepink.org. And if you check uh, interest in Latin America, we will for sure let you know how things are going with Cuba. Every Friday, we have been in Washington, D.C. with Jane Fonda for Fire Drill Fi Fridays because we know that some of the biggest polluters on the world, around the world, in fact, the biggest polluter is the U.S. Department of Defense. So we are connecting those dots and showing up and putting our bodies on the line and in the streets. And you can join us for that. Uh, also, you can find that on our website, codepink.org, Fire Drill Fridays. So we are going to move over to the topic of Palestine, both uh, what's going on in the West Bank, in Gaza, and uh, what Israel is perpetrating on the Palestinian people. And I believe we have uh, Khalida Jarrar, no, Khalida Jarrar's daughter on the line. You can't have Khalida Jarrar because she's in prison. And you'll be hearing more about that. Take it away, Anas. Um, so we're going to have Yafal Jarrar, um, the daughter of Khalida Jarrar, with us today. Hi, Yafa. Hi, thanks for having me. Of course, uh, thank you for uh, being with us today. So, um, can uh, first, as Code Pink team, we want to say how sorry we are for what's happening to your mom. Um, this is unfair and injustice, and unfortunately, and we would like you to tell us about what happened in the recent arrest, please. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, uh, as we have been saying since mom was arrested on the er, in the early hours of October 31st um, at around 3 a.m. in the morning, uh, Israeli forces raided our home yet again uh, in the city of Ramallah in the West Bank uh, to arrest my mother. My sister and my mom uh, were sleeping at the time. Uh, this is the third time that Israeli forces uh, detained my mother since 2015. Uh, she had been released from her last detention of 18 months just in the end of February of 2019. Um, about 70 soldiers surrounded our house in Ramallah and perhaps 20 of those entered the house for her arrest. Of course, there was no uh, warrant for the arrest my sister specifically asked the commander of the region who accompanied the forces for a warrant 
and he basically says that does not apply to us. Um, what that means and the whole way of arresting my mom and also arresting other Palestinian prisoners, um, it's important to note that mom is only one of 5,050 Palestinian political prisoners in Israeli prisons right now. 460 of those are under administrative detention, 43 women, 190 children, 20 of those are under the age of 16. Um, so what, what, Israel, what the commander meant by the warrant, the, arrest, the warrant for arrest does not apply to us is basically uh, clarifying to us what Israel has been doing since 1948, which is to see itself, to exclude itself from international laws, uh, by creating new categories of laws that would cover its actions. So basically, Israel has been continuously mocking human rights, uh, human rights and humanitarian laws, mocking international laws, mocking uh, conventions, and acting with impunity. Uh, my mother's detention until this minute, um, we are unclear. There has been no charges or evidence against her. She has not been uh, ordered to be under administrative detention either. Oh. So the situation that she's in now is completely unclear. Mm -hmm. It's also in violation of international laws, in particular Article 49 of the Fourth Geneva Convention, uh, which, uh, which, um, which articulates that it, it is illegal for an occupying force to transfer uh, the occupied from the occupied territories to the occupiers' territories. Um, so until this minute, they have been uh, transferring. Mom is in complete isolation. She's in Hashiron Detention Center, uh, which is not the permanent detention center for women. It's only a transfer detention center. She's in complete isolation from other political prisoners. They have been transferring her to Ofer. Um, detention center in the West Bank, um, the settlement near Ramallah, to appear before uh, what they call a, a court, which is not really what we're used to in terms of courts in the U.S. and here in Canada, where I live currently. Mm -hmm. uh, but instead, these are military courts run by judges and uh, prosecutors that are, who are active members of the Israeli military. They yeah. transferred her so far four times, and the four times they have extended her detention another six days, every time another six days, uh, without presenting any charges against her or any evidence against her. So he, it has become abundantly clear for us that Israel is scrambling to find a way to keep my mother away from her human rights activities, uh, from her role as an educator, as uh, a researcher at Birzeit University, etc. Could you talk a bit about why Israel would feel so threatened by your mother and what your um, thoughts are for if or when she might be released? Mm -hmm. uh, this is a very good question. Israel, as you know, has dominated the narrative in the West um, since the day of its existence in 1947, 1948. Um, and the dominant narrative has basically been um, centered around dehumanizing Palestinians in general and labeling us as savages, as terrorists, as people without any political history, um, not even a people, not mm -hmm. sovereign, etc. And that was proven um, with the recent escalation on Gaza two days. Like absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and we, I would love to get into that as well because that's also a pressing issue. Please, uh, but please for somebody get into like that. My mother, my, for somebody like my mother, Khalida Jarrar, who is a feminist, who is a secular, who is a human rights defender, um, who happened last time she was arrested in 2017. It just happened days after she uh, was chosen to lead a Palestinian effort to take Israel to the International Criminal Court. Mm -hmm. um, who has been, uh, exactly, who has been uh, outspoken in Palestine and on international media against the violations of international laws that Israel commits on a daily basis. Uh, exposing their uh, criminal uh, record, all of that. 
and we uh, can along deny her role with, as a as as a woman and a Palestinian woman and advocating for women prisoners and women's rights in Palestine, which is absolutely. very powerful and, and been, really brave from her side. Absolutely, and as um, uh, within her uh, duties as an elected member of the Legislative Council in Palestine, Mom has also been involved in. Uh, local reforms of uh, of our local laws in the West Bank uh, in regards to women and women's yes. rights. So all of these things combined, um, what Israel sees in Khalida is that it actually sh- she shatters their democratic image. Mm-hmm. Khalida poses um, a threat, not in terms of any of her activities, but in terms of her existing as a figure to advance uh, human rights um, laws to advance human rights principles, principles of equality, justice for all, uh, secular secular principles, feminist principles. Mm-hmm. All of these um, that she stands for shatter Israel's democratic image, which is a myth that it continues to try um, to to uh, to to to, uh, to, uh, to prove to the world. You know, we hear all the time that. Uh, Israel is a haven for LGBTQ people. Israel is the best country in the Middle East for women women and minorities and so on. And yet they are imprisoning um, the very champions uh, in Palestinian society for women's rights, for secularism, for equality in those ways, for progressive values. And that proves absolutely. Uh, I mean, a state that's built on uh, the foundations of violence and the foundations of suppression and oppression, there is no way that they can, no matter how much PR they put in, how much funding they put into mm-hmm. PR and into um, uh, kind of brightening the image of Israel internationally, it's really difficult to show or to try to uh, to show that they actually are there for all these rights that they and, and all the greenwashing and the pinkwashing that Israel has been doing throughout the years. Could you talk a little bit about um, your mother's work specifically for women's mm-hmm. rights and some of the things that she specifically advocates for and the programs that she's initiated? I would love for you to talk about her work in the prison for women prisoner when she was detained for 18 months. Absolutely. Um, so uh, outside of prison, mom has been, as a lawmaker, she has been involved in legal reforms yeah. uh, in, in regards many different legal reforms in regards to ensuring women's rights and equality for women in general, and also uh, the prevention of violence against women in Palestine. So that's on a local level. While she was in jail, she was, um, of course, as you know, detained with now we have 43 women imprisoned. At the time when she was detained, there was 46, and the numbers keep changing. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of these women are young women uh, who are 15, 16, 17 years old. So that means that they have been taken away from their schools. They have been taken away from um, attaining education, which is, by the way, uh, a systemic um, uh, thing that Israel has been yeah. doing throughout also, uh, preventing the right to education and uh, trying to prevent Palestinians from attaining that right. So what mom did while she was in jail is that she immediately started with educational programs inside uh, book readings. She had um, a full course for Palestinian pres- female prisoners on international laws, uh, on um, teaching them about their own rights and how they have been violated. They started researching and writing. Um, uh, she taught them the principles of academic research, but also how to bring in lived experience into academic research, etc. A lot of the women who missed school while they're in jail and continue to be in jail also missed um, years of their high school um, as well, so they weren't able to graduate high school. What mom did in collaboration with the Ministry of Education while she was in jail is to conduct a program where they would be able to write their high school exams while in jail and graduate. So that has been successful. Um, So, yeah, I mean, her role inside of jail also, she, a lot of those young women 
uh, we have to remember that there are also young people who should be at home, who should be um, engaged in activities that other teenagers are engaged in. Um, they miss their, their families. They miss their mothers. So she also provided that motherly figure for them. Yeah. And could you talk a little bit about, so speaking of mothers, I, I know that I'm still, I feel like my heart is split in two, and I keep thinking back to this uh, story from yesterday of a mother, I'm a mother myself, who walked out into her yard and found that her two children and her husband had been killed by an Israeli airstrike. Mm-hmm. Um, could you talk a little bit about what's going on in, in Gaza and what your mother would be uh, talking about right now and, and calling for if uh, her mute, her voice wasn't being muted by Israel? Yeah. Uh, well, I think if, if mom was out, outside of jail or even not kept in isolation from the world right now, she would be absolutely condemning the, viola- the continuous violations um, that... Israel is committing in Gaza, uh, but also in the West Bank. What's happening in Gaza is um, is heartbreaking, um, and it's heartbreaking especially because the U.S. and the international community have been completely silent on it. Yeah. Um, and that also makes the international community complicit in what Israel is doing. Israel is acting with impunity. Uh, it has tested the international community over and over and over again, especially since 2014, when they launched the first major attack in Gaza. Uh, And I think what we have to remember from this attack that just uh, lasted two days this time so far is that this attack did not happen in a vacuum. This comes after years and years of people in Gaza living in one of the most um, densely populated places on Earth, with a complete blockade under continuous daily attacks, Gaza has been going for the past few years with 20 hours per day blackouts with no electricity. That also means that hospitals, not only homes, but also hospitals don't have electricity 20, uh, 20 hours a day. And we can only imagine what that would do in terms of hospital machi- machine malfunction. Not only that, so, with the siege, we don't have enough medical supplies to mm-hmm. uh, treat people who get injured by the airstrikes, which makes it even worse. And we want to say, I, I'm so grateful for the medical teams who are trying to do their best with the least they have with medical supplies. Absolutely. And that's, that's a very good point. And we also have to remember that over 80% of the population in Gaza relies on international assistance to survive. Yes. And cases of disease and malnutrition are on the rise. So even without the recent attack on Gaza, Gaza is on the verge of collapsing. And that's because of years and years and continuous blockade and years of attack that Israel has been launching. Only if we just look back to 2018, um, when the Palestinians in Gaza, for example, began protesting in what we now know as the Great March of Return, uh, peaceful protests uh, led by Gazians to ask for their basic human rights. Since then, only Israel killed 320 Palestinians in Gaza. And it was Wounded peaceful over protest. You know, we hear all Absolutely. the time, and if only, where's the Palestinian Gandhi? If only Palestinians could learn how to pro- could learn uh, how to protest peacefully. And here was this, and there are many examples from the right. uh, prayer protests yeah. at Al-Aqsa and, and, and so many, I, I can't even begin to name them. But here Palestinians are peacefully marching for mm-hmm. um, their rights and under international law. At this point, we can't deny that, that Israel is ethnic cleansing Palestinians. Absolutely. And this all goes back also to the narrative um, and the fact that the, vi- the continuous violence that Israel is committing in Gaza um, is largely absent from the dominant narrative that we in the West get from mainstream media. That is Absolutely. completely absent. What we get on the Western uh, media is that Israel responded to rockets coming from Gaza yeah. to Israel. Well, when we look at the facts, Actually, if we look at the Israeli government... Israel initiated the last escalation. They assassinated... Absolutely, and they even said it. They said it. The Israeli government noted itself that it 
expected a response to targeted assassinations, mm -hmm. which, by the way, also illegal under international law. Yes, they made absolutely. it clear that the escalation was purposeful mm -hmm. and that it was started by the Israeli military. They didn't even try to hide it. No, and they and said they had planned it for almost a couple of months ahead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And also we have to remember that when we speak of the attacks that are coming from Gaza, we are also talking uh, about them in the context of daily Israeli attacks on Gaza, including shootings across the uh, boundary fence, shooting of uh, protesters, shooting of fishermen, just yeah. actually fishing, uh, bombings, shellings. Uh, even I, I saw uh, a title in The Guardian yesterday uh, saying an Israeli woman was injured by a piece of glass. That's the main title. And yes. underneath, 21 Palestinians killed yes. in smaller font. Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, facts and truths are important. And they are important to be taken within those narratives that are coming out and to see which lies are actually valued more um, in, in uh, mainstream media. And that all empowers Israel to keep going and going and going. Absolutely. <laughs> so I want to let folks know that Code Pink, we're going to be sending out an email action alert uh, later this afternoon so that folks can take action to call for Congress to speak out that Israel must release uh your mother, and all of the other Palestinian political prisoners, and that Congress should pressure Israel to end its military administrative detention policies. And if folks are not already signed up for our emails and want to get that email, because you should absolutely get that email and take action, you can sign up for our emails on our website. That's codepink.org. Um what are your thoughts of any additional things that people can be doing to um, help advocate for not just your mother's case, but all of the Palestinians being held um, as political prisoners, including the children? Um, I think everybody should be outraged, especially elected officials, um, uh, representatives around the world. My mother's case is maybe unique because she's also an elected um, parliamentarian and a woman, um, and, and so there's special importance there. But in regards to other political prisoners, especially those children and those held under administrative detention, which allows Israel to indefinitely hold prisoners under the so-called secret evidence, so not even the lawyer has access to what that secret evidence is. And this also means that due process that we're used to in the legal systems mm -hmm. in democratic countries don't apply in Israel, which um, is mind-blowing. If any, not legal scholars, but any person would look at these, at these facts. So everybody should be outraged by that. I think the other major thing, a tool that the Palestinian civil society gave to the world back in 2005, and I think what would be most effective for the international community in terms of um, supporting Palestinian prisoners, but also the liberation of Palestinians in general, and to ensure that Israel does not continue to commit to commit violations of international laws and human rights, is the call for boycott, divestment, and sanctions against Israel until it complies with international laws. Every um, place within the international community, in the U.S., in Europe, in, in Africa, in Latin South America, everywhere in the world. There are tools, there are groups that are doing BDS work, and I call on anybody and everybody um, who, uh, who sees themselves as somebody who cares about the equality of everybody and international laws to actually follow what's going on in their lo local communities in regards to BDS, because that's really our major and main tool in the international community to hold Israel accountable. And we at Code Pink are thrilled to be part of the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. We have a couple campaigns for that, uh, including that we are calling on insurance giant AXA, this is the second largest insurance company in the entire world, to divest from Elbit Systems. Elbit is Israel's largest weapons manufacturer, 
They also provide a virtual wall at the U.S.-Mexico border for the Trump administration. And uh, in Israel, they were just part of this massive assault that took the lives of 34 people, including six children. So you can go to our website for that, and that's uh, codepink.org slash AXA, and send them and direct, uh, signed our petition telling AXA to divest from Israeli war crimes from both Elbit and also from Israeli banks that they're invested in. And that's codepink.org slash AXA, A-X-A. We have really enjoyed having you on, and um, I'm wondering if you have any final thoughts that you want to leave us with um, before we let you go and move on to the second half of our show. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, for having me. I think we uh, we covered pretty much what can be covered in a short time. Uh, thank you for your work, and I uh, really hope that uh, your campaign is successful. I hope that as well, and I hope we hear the news of um, Khalida Jara release very, very soon, because we need more people like her. Inshallah. And again, I want to remind folks that we'll be sending out an email action alert later on today um, so that folks can take action to free uh, Khalida. And um, that will also be posted on social media, and we encourage everyone to get involved in that. Thank you, Yafa. Thank you. We paid him, we trained him to be a man. When our enemy was not Iraq, but Iran, they feed you lies to want you to think. They sick of terror, we sick of pain. They feed you lies to want you to think. They sick of terror, we sick of pain. WBAI in New York, the voice of truth. I took a pounding from the radio today. I heard the radio say it over and over. And there was no escape. This is WBAI 99.5 FM in New York, and this is Iggy Pop. Thanks so much. We're back. We're back. So it seems like things are just blowing up everywhere in the world just talking about the Middle East and I want to run through um, a couple of actions that folks can take before we move on to our next topic which is that things are also really bad right now in Latin America so back in, in the Middle East I myself I just returned from a code pink peace delegation to Iran and one of the things that I learned while there is how badly the people are suffering from the US sanctions you know, these sanctions are supposed to hurt the government of Iran, but the people that get affected uh, in Iran, it's not the government people. It's not the wealthy there. It's the common, ordinary people. And one of the things that the sanctions are doing is stopping humanitarian aid, food and medicine from getting in. The sanctions are stopping cancer medications from getting in, medications for epilepsy, and medications for people in Iran who are still suffering from the effects of the use of chemical weapons during the Iran-Iraq war. While there, I met with a number of those people, and they suffer from really severe uh, issues with their eyes and need um, ongoing medications for that. And that medication can't get in, thanks to the United States. 
So I want to um, encourage folks, we are contacting Congress and telling Congress to take action to ensure that uh, the U.S. does not block medication from getting in, which is illegal for the U.S. to do and under international law. And the U.S. says that they have systems to get humanitarian aid in. But guess what? Those systems just aren't quite working. Who would think that the U.S. would be so devious? So you can go to our website, codepink.org slash Iran sanctions to contact Congress and tell them to take action. Now, we have Leonardo Flores on the line, who is part of our Latin America campaign team. You know, there's so much going on, and we talked in the beginning about um, what happened with Medea yesterday. Uh, Leo, do you want to start there and then take us into uh, what's been happening in Bolivia? Sure, that sounds good. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, Hi, yeah. Leo. Thank you for having me. Hi. So yesterday, the uh, in Congress, they launched the Venezuela uh, the Democracy in Venezuela Caucus, the Congressional Venezuela Democracy, Democracy Caucus, excuse me. Is that really to bring democracy? Which, yeah, exactly. It's quite the opposite. It's, it's basically to bring regime change and more sanctions to Venezuela. And so, you know, we at Code Pink, we heard that they were having this open uh, press conference on public ground. And so we decided that we had to go there. Uh, and so a bunch of us, there maybe I think five or six of us in total, we went there with our signs and we were chanting and we, you know, basically were trying to tell uh, uh, the Congress, uh, rep- the representatives there to talk about some of the real issues affecting Venezuela, including the sanctions and including the fact that nobody supports this coup in Venezuela. And then, you know, I was maybe like four or five people behind Medea and suddenly I hear her screaming, you're choking me, you're choking me. And I look over and I see Medea being pushed and being shoved and to the ground. <laughs> and, I mean, it was very, I mean, and this is behavior that's totally typical, unfortunately, for this extremist uh, Venezuelan opposite, opposition in D.C. And it's something we live through almost every day throughout in the siege at the Venezuelan embassy back in April and May. It was, you know, I mean, they, these folks can get pretty scary. I myself was certain there was physical violence yesterday. Uh, and the police did nothing. I <laughs> the remember actually... the Venezuelan embassy so well. I was physically and sexually assaulted, hit in the head, in the face, like I said, sexual assault. And the police like watched this happen. And I would say, aren't you going to do anything? And they would just say, oh, I saw nothing. I said, how could you see nothing? You were staring right at it. But if you didn't see, here's a video of it that somebody took and they would say, no, I'm so sorry. Once they told me that uh, if I wanted to have the person who had assaulted me arrested, that they would have to arrest me as well. And in fact, then they did arrest me for they delivering food. Yeah. That's right. You know, I mean, the, the peaceful protesters are the ones who have been arrested during this whole saga relating to Venezuela here in the U.S. And it's, and it's quite a shame. And then we saw the police yesterday. I mean, after after the action ended, the press conference ended, we all kind of the Code Pink group all went their separate ways. And uh, Medea went to her home. And then while a bunch of us were on the metro, we get this call that the police have surrounded Medea's house. I think she said something. There were like five or six cop cars and several motorcycles, probably about a dozen police in all, in a clear attempt to intimidate a peaceful activist. Uh, uh, luckily, she didn't go under arrest because she asked where the warrant was. The police didn't have a warrant, and so they said that they would get back to her. Apparently, um, the police then said that detectives had reviewed the footage and said that they weren't going to you know, follow through with anything. But we don't really know what's going to happen because we saw journalist Max Blumenthal arrested a few weeks ago and held for about 24 hours for an incident that allegedly occurred, occurred five months ago. And so that was an attempt to intimidate a journalist, and here is another attempt to intimidate a peace activist. It's really, really, really shocking what's been going on with the police here in D.C. and how they are cooperating fully with uh, with the Venezuelan opposition. You know, there were a lot of members of Congress that uh, there are a lot of members of Congress that support this. Could you talk about how this Venezuelan opposition are so powerful? And then if you could take us over to Bolivia as well and talk about the connections. Sure. So uh, well, one of the big reasons that Venezuela is such a, is a bipartisan issue. The regime change in Venezuela is a bipartisan issue. It's because there's a big Venezuelan voting bloc in southern Florida. And so yesterday we had two representatives from southern Florida, Florida, Mario Diaz-Balart and Debbie Wasserman Schultz. And both sides are trying to court this Venezuelan vote, not just because of the actual vote itself, but because there's a lot of rich Venezuelans who live in Florida, and these people contribute to both parties. 
right? And so that's one of the main issue, really, in regarding Venezuela in Congress is that not just the votes in districts, but that Florida itself being, you know, a key swing state in presidential elections. And so it's going to be very difficult to break through this kind of grip on power that that the Venezuelan opposition has in Congress and, and, and get, you know, a more balanced perspective of what's going on in the country. And, and let me use that to springboard onto Bolivia. Please, because things are jumping off over there. Yeah, that's right. And when we, I mean, the first thing we have to say is that this was a coup. <laughs> you know, I don't know why that's so hard to say, but it's clear from the coverage in, say, the New York Times or the Washington Post that the mainstream media is having trouble understanding that when a president, in this case it was Evo Morales, resigned because the head of the army and the head of the police suggested that he resigned. Yeah, I don't know if resigned is really, I mean, of course he did resign, but this wasn't a voluntary resignation, which is why this was a coup. When the military says, we strongly suggest you resign, otherwise, you know, you might die. That's that's a a coup. That's and there were very serious threats of violence, not just against Evo Morales, but also against other uh, uh, politicians that be- belong to the governing party. So we saw two governors have their houses burned down. We saw the president of the lower house of parliament. He had his house burned down and his brother was kidnapped and taken hostage oh unless he resigned, which he did. So, yeah, we're talking about resignations, but they're resignations under duress. They're forced resignations. Now, and I- for Abel himself. I hear often that uh, Eva was unpopular, and that's why he was forced to resign. Could you help refute that a little bit? And why? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, what did he do for the country? So um, let's talk. About, well, I mean, we have to start with the fact that Eva was the first indigenous president in a country that has an indigenous majority. Wow. And so we're talking about Abel broke with 500 years of white supremacist rule in Bolivia. Colonialism. And he ruled for <laughs> exactly. So if you were talking about. What settler colonialism basically is very lots of similarities with with what's going on in Palestine in many ways. But, Absolutely, you know, I can so, I can talk about that. <laughs> yeah, uh, we should, and and you know, Ava also like he cut extreme poverty by sixty percent, regular wow. poverty by forty percent. The economy kept growing in Bolivia, and in contrast to Chile, where we had economic growth but also increasing poverty and increasing inequality, Bolivia managed to reduce poverty and reduce inequality. And this inequality, it wasn't just economic equality. Bolivia drafted a new constitution that is really, that recognizes all the different uh, ethnicities and nations within Bolivia. So in Bolivia, after this new constitution, began to be called a plurinational state. And it has something like now 36 uh, recognized official languages, right? So recognizing the diversity within Bolivia and within uh, Bolivia's majority indigenous community. And one thing that this coup really represents is, as I mentioned before, white supremacy. And let me just give you a couple of examples of that, because it's not just white supremacy. It's also this kind of a fundamentalist Christian uh, extremist worldview. So uh, one of the coup leaders, he went into the presidential palace after Evo allegedly resigned, and he placed the Bolivian flag on the floor and a Bible on top of the flag. And then after leaving the palace, the pastor that was with him, he said Pachamama, and Pachamama is the Andean goddess representing Mother Earth. He said Pachamama will never return to the palace. Bolivia belongs to Christ. Wow. Um, Before we continue, I want to uh, give out the call-in line. If folks have questions, you can call 212-209-2877. And ask your questions either about Bolivia, Latin America, or Palestine. And uh, we'll go on and and continue talking until we hear if there's a caller on the line. Again, that's 212-209-2877. Leo, can you talk about the possible ramifications uh, that the coup in Bolivia could have on Venezuela? Right. So... A few weeks ago, Juan Guaido, who's the opposition leader in Venezuela that's been recognized by the U.S. as, you know, the allegedly interim president, he called for a big protest on November 16th. And really, when he called for this initially, nobody was paying attention because he calls for a huge protest every month and nobody turns up because he's someone who has no credibility in the country. But with events in Bolivia now, the the more extremist uh, politicians are basically asking their supporters to do what the Bolivians did. And what that means is that they want to see violence on the streets in order to force the government to resign. So we're going to, definitely going to have to keep an eye on what's going to go on in Venezuela on Saturday. 
but honestly, you know, I think we might see uh, uh, examples of violence, but I don't think we're going to see any sort of overthrow of the government, but something that we should be watching for sure. Now, we're, you know, in the midst of watching um, a rise of the right wing and a rise of fascism across Latin America, as well as the entire world. But um, just in Latin America, could you talk about some of these, you know, trends? Because we've got, of course, Brazil and the, the role that the U.S. is playing in the in these. Yeah, I mean, we so in Brazil, there was a parliamentary coup, basically, against former President Dilma Rousseff. Uh, and then we had a, a very neoliberal guy take over for about a year. His name was Temer. After that, we had the election of a, you know, a right-wing fascist, basically. A guy that almost really puts Trump to shame in, in Jair Bolsonaro, someone who's gone after uh, Brazil's Afro-Brazilian uh, population, after their LGBTQ population, and indigenous populations. Uh, you know, it's, he's someone who represents a very interesting conflict between business interests and evangelical interest and, and, you know, straight-up racism. Uh, we've, we've also seen you know, the rise of neoliberalism in Argentina uh, and continued neoliberalism in Chile and in Colombia. But in the last couple of months, this is starting to shift, right? We saw in Argentina the left-wing win presidential elections about a month ago. Uh, the new government, uh, government is going to take power. It's going to be sworn in in December, and they've already denounced this coup in Bolivia. Uh, we've seen a rise, a huge rise up against neoliberalism in Chile. There's millions of people on the street still to this day. Every day they're going out onto the streets and facing brutal police repression. Uh, lots of people have died, and even more people have had they're been blinded by the police who are shooting basically BB guns at people's eyes. So we've had dozens of examples of kids, basically you know young adults, having being blinded uh, and. Now Chileans are rising up and asking for a new constitution. Uh, things in Chile are changing day by day, and I think they're they're going to manage to achieve a new constitution, but we'll have to keep an eye on that. And in Colombia, which has been traditionally the most right-wing country in Latin America, they had municipal elections a few weeks ago where the left made big strides, and more importantly, where the extreme right got decimated, and they lost a lot of uh, positions of power. So, yeah, we, we do have kind of these... Uh, two forces in Latin America of fascism and progressivism, and you know they're, they've been fighting it out, so to speak. And but and I think it's very hopeful that progressive forces in many many countries in Latin America are making huge strides. And going back to Bolivia, we see that also as well in the reaction to the coup. Uh, millions of people, I don't know, maybe thousands of people at least, are out on the streets of several cities in Bolivia. Uh, and indigenous folks have been facing off against the police. And I've heard there were reports yesterday that in the city of El Alto in Bolivia, four police stations were taken over by these protesters who have been facing off in clashes with the police and the military. Uh, the, the biggest trade union in Bolivia called for a 24-hour strike, which is supposed to start later today, unless the coup government resigns. And we're, we're going to also see, and, and last, late last night, the Bolivian parliament uh, met and decided not to accept Abel Morales' resignation and to strongly condemn this coup. So now we're going to have this, you know, uh, a clash between different institutions in Bolivia regarding who is actually the, the president or even the, or the interim president. You know, I heard that uh, the embassy in uh, Brazil, the Venezuelan embassy, has been taken over. It was. It was taken over briefly. Uh, it's still unclear how it was taken over, but we we do know that there were uh, right wingers that took over the the embassy. But they were recently they were kicked out yesterday. Uh, the Bolivian government, uh, sorry, excuse me, the Brazilian government uh, actually denounced what had happened. They decided to respect international law in contrast to the Trump administration, which very much gave the green light for these opposition forces to take over forcibly take over the Venezuelan embassy here in DC. That's great news. Um, I hadn't yeah. I hadn't caught that piece of news. I want to remind callers of the line to call in if you have listeners of the line to call in if you have questions. That's 212-209-2877. You can call in with questions about Bolivia, Venezuela, Palestine, or Code Pink. Leo, could you talk about what's going on, you know, how Medea is doing now and uh, any concerns that she could still be arrested? Yeah, so Medea is, you know, I think she's 
shaken up. We went to her house, right? We happened to get there right after the police left, and she was very shaken up and felt very intimidated. Uh, she told us that she woke up all sore, which to me makes perfect sense because I saw her saw her get pushed very violently. But I think her spirits are, are up because you know she's gotten a lot of a lot of messages of support and goodwill and love from not just members of Code Pink but members of the community in general and people who respect and appreciate all the great work that she and Code Pink do to denounce imperialism and to stand with people who have been, uh, you know, very oppressed, not just by their own governments, but by the, by U.S. imperialism in general. Um, it was, you know, I think, I think Medea is, is, is a warrior and, and I, I respect her so much. I, I, I you agree. know, she doesn't like the word I warrior, agree. she's like peacemaker. <laughs> <laughs> and so let, let's call her a peacemaker, which she is. And, you know, she's, she's an amazing person. She's going to be, she's going to be fine. But we also have to be, keep in mind that you, that this is this tactic of intimidation is, is something that's going to they're going to try to hang over her head for who knows how long. Right. I mean, at any point, we could see the, the police come from Medea based on this incident. And that's really, really shameful. And it really makes it feel like we're living in a police state and which we kind of are as, as people of color know and, and, and immigrants know. Absolutely. So I want to let folks know where they can go to take action uh, for Bolivia and to learn more. And that's codepink.org slash Bolivia underscore coup. Leo, do you have any other ideas of how people can help with them? Well, really, the various situations going on in Latin America? Yeah, so this Saturday there's going to be a rally at the White House in support of Bolivian democracy and denouncing this coup, uh, and that's for folks in D.C. I think folks in New York are going to gather in Columbus Circle at noon as well. Uh, but really, one of the, I mean, we've seen a lot of progressives uh, take kind of very poorly nuanced stances on this coup and refusing to calling the coup and making excuses for why Abel Morales had to go and not really realizing that if Angel Morales goes and the, the, his MAS party, the Movement Towards Socialism Party, is refused uh, or is not allowed to participate in future elections, which is what the opposition is proposing, then we're going to see a, either a neoliberal or a fascist government in Bolivia that's going to strongly, strongly oppress the indigenous majority. And so I think it's really up to all of us to begin educating ourselves on this issue of Bolivia and to contact our members of Congress to insist that they denounce the coup as a coup. And also, you know, one, one of the things we want members of Congress to do is to call for a congressional investigation into how the U.S. or what the U.S. role was in this coup. Uh, so we know, for example, that the U.S. through USAID and through OTI, which is the Office of Transition Initiative, which basically is an office for regime change, uh, they had been funding Bolivian opposition groups since about 2002, including the Santa Cruz Civic Committee, and that's the and the president of this committee happens to be Luis Camacho, who is the coup leader, right? And then we also, you know, we know uh, another reason we know that this was a coup is that their uh, Bolivian media leaked audio files of conversations between opposition politicians from over a month ago, before the elections happened, revealing their plan to cause social unrest before and after the elections in order to delegitimize the Morales administration. And in these conversations, they talk about the great support they have from Senators Rubio, Cruz, and Menendez, who are also, you know, very much involved in the attempts at regime change in Venezuela. What might some of their motivations be, Rubio, Cruz, and Menendez? Why would they want to get involved in this? Well, one of the reasons is that they're all Cuban-American, and there's a very strong Cuban-American right wing that has a lot of money and plays an important role in financing campaigns. And they want to see, uh, they want to overthrow the government in Cuba, and they think that the way to do that is to overthrow the government in Venezuela. And, you know, a way to do that is to go after their, all of their allies. So we've seen, uh, we had an almost coup attempt in Nicaragua uh, about a year ago, and then and this coup attempt in Bolivia, and because these are all these four countries in particular are in a an alliance, basically called the Bolivarian Alliance for the Americas, and U.S. policy has been to destroy this alliance by by any means necessary, pretty much. This could just be called the Alliance for 
the USA for that America. As we reach the top of the hour, I want to let folks know on the ground actions that will be taking place in Washington, D.C. and New York City. You uh, mentioned uh, one for Latin America, and we also have an action in New York City for Palestine. So we have an emergency action for Gaza, and that's going to take place on Friday, November 15 at 5 p.m. to tomorrow. 7 p.m. So tomorrow, please come and support and stand with Gaza. It's going to take place at uh, West 42 2nd Street and 7th Avenue. So, so 42nd and 7th Avenue, and uh, Anas will be there in person she will have some pink on so you can help you can look for her and find find her you could also email her to join her at enas at codepink.org e-n-a-s at codepink.org please join her uh, tomorrow for the emergency protest for Gaza and Leo can you say again the uh, action taking place in Washington D.C. Yes, on Saturday at noon, we're going to be gathering in front of the White House in a rally to denounce the coup in Bolivia. So I hope to see a bunch of folks out there. And the contact for that would be you, Leo. So that's Leonardo at codepink.org. And if folks forget these emails, you can always send an email to info at codepink. So we're just about closing out our show. We want to thank all of our guests today. And I just want to plug um, people uh, earlier on. We had the daughter of Khalida Jarrar on. And we have now got an action up on our website that happened during this radio show. So people can take that action to uh, call for her her mother to be freed. And that's codepink.org slash Free Khalida Jarrar, that's K-H-A-L-I-D-A-J-A-R-R-A-R. And you can also just find it by going to codepink.org and looking on the main page. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been Code Pink Radio, live out of WBAI 99.5 FM in New York City. WBAI New York, 99.5 FM and WBAI.org on the web. We're in our fundraising and membership drive. Please call us now. We're standing by waiting for you to make a call, a 
pledge of support to WBAI at 516-620-3602. Code Pink Radio. That's a joint collaboration between our sister station, WPFW in Washington, D.C., and here in New York, WBAI 99.5 FM. All that you heard over this past hour and all that you hear, this is community radio here at 99.5 FM. And we're waiting for your calls of support, financial support, to keep this listener-sponsored community radio station on the air. Listener-sponsored community radio. This station, WBAI, has been listener-sponsored since 1960 because of listeners just like you, just like you. You can make a contribution of any amount, if it's $50, $75, $25, $500. Do what you can to support WBAI, 516-620-3602. Let us hear from you now, 516 516- 